I absolutely agree that everyone should become a climate journalist. Everyone should learn the basics of climate science because you need to know that just to understand what's happening and why. Welcome back to Media Voices, everybody. We are the Media Focus podcast that takes a look at all the news and the views from the media world over the past week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. That clip you heard was from this week's interview with James Fan, Global Director of Internews Environmental Programme and its Earth Journalism Network. Internews trains journalists around the world in support of a free press. And James spoke with me just before he was getting on a plane to come to Glasgow to work with a group of journalists from the Global South to cover COP26 from their perspective rather than the perspective of all the rich papers in the West. <laughs> I couldn't even get through the intro <laughs> without having a go. Fair. And just before we dive into this week's news, just to highlight that we're releasing a special podcast documentary episode this coming Wednesday, sponsored by Permeative. So this podumentary looks at the great privacy reset that's taking place in the industry right now and what it means for publishers. We've got some really brilliant input from Insiders' Jana Meron, uh, Permeative's Joe Root and Futures' Nick Flood. That's landing this coming Wednesday, so keep an ear out. Okay, but before that, we're going to talk about a potential fight back from brands. Um, So we've seen this a couple of times over the past couple of months. I'm sure that you both remember New York Times has launched its own audio product to try and take control back of the audio space from Spotify's and Apple's and all that kind of stuff. But now it's happening with newsletters. So Charlie Warsaw's Galaxy Brain newsletter is moving to the Atlantic. So it's recruited one of Substack's poster boys and an ex-NYT opinion writer, back into its new newsletter portfolio. So he's going from totally independent via Substack back into this Atlantic program, which also has nine other writers. So is this the beginning of the end for the independent newsletter dream? <laughs> it's just on a postcard <laughs> or an email newsletter. I, I don't think it's the end of anything. Um I do think it's fascinating and a really interesting play from the Atlantic. Mm. You know, this we've seen the numbers. Not everyone gets rich doing a newsletter. No. We are a very good example of that. <laughs> um, so this is just, I guess this is just one more way that people can make money out of newsletters. But I think what's interesting from a Substack point of view is that People like the Atlantic, as well as having pretty deep pockets so they can pay people real money, um, they have a brand. They have that incredible, incredible credibility. Mm-hmm. And a, a discoverability aspect yeah. as well existing on there. Um, I think you're right to flag up the fact that very few people get rich <laughs> doing independent <laughs> newsletters. I think that you know when we've seen people do those kind of oh, after a year of Substack, here's what I've learned breakdowns, and the sheer difficulty of doing it right and getting an audience and actually getting paid. That if you're not one of those kind of big hundred creators, is it, it, it's impossible. I, I think what will happen long term is such a crappy old school phrase but the cream will float to the top right okay and it and it'll be people like charlie or um 
I guess the New York Times, people like they've already got working with them, Kara Swisher, mm. names that you properly know from elsewhere. Those will be ones that join or rejoin brands. I will just say the the writers at the Atlantic have chosen to go on this. All due credit to them. It's a really fantastically diverse bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you've got people like Molly Jong first. You've got um, there's like an international affairs specialist, Tom Nichols. There's an African American studies scholar, Imani Perry. That th- there's some really really interesting things from completely across the spectrum. Um, and I think that's interesting. It's not just oh here are like nine white guys that write news. It's, it's actually <laughs> they've actually thought about probably the people they want to attract as an audience and who's going to attract that. That sounded um, like uh, Twelve Angry Men. Nine white guys who write newsletters. <laughs> um, the one thing I, I think it's, is I'd love to know is going on here is what's going on with the data and who's owning that. No, they get to keep their subs. Wow. Okay. That. I mean, that's that's really good going because then if you know if Molly turns around in a year and is like, I oh, know, actually, I want to go back to being independent, she she then gets to keep the the subscribers she's she's grown herself. The thing Charlie Wiles Wiles wrote. Um, on, on his newsletter, um, it, it explains the, the the program. So any subscribers that they get that they bring in, they get a cut. They keep their original list. I'm not sure if they get the new ones. That's interesting. Yeah, um, but this, this is now that sure. sort of recognition that actually the 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 value that these people bring. There's a huge amount of value in that in that list in those people that they bring with them, and that's almost the sort of the asset that they bring with them. <laughs> it's a bit like Rumspringer. You know, you sort of let your writers go out and be independent for like a year and then you <laughs> let them come back in with all kind of this new experience and these new <laughs> subscribers. But this this was always going to happen, right? We could see this, you know, it was always going to circle back that either people were going to, people were going to realise it was really, really hard to do on your own um, and they were either going to sort of join up with other brands, do uh, other newsletter writers and do bundles or they were going to somehow go back to publishers um it, it feels a bit inevitable i'm slightly surprised it's happened this quickly mm. but it it does feel like this this is always going to happen and it's not particularly surprising i think it's happening so quickly because magazines and papers are just thinking oh my god we better do something quick <laughs> Yeah, I think we we spoke about it a couple of weeks ago that I know that there's a, a fair few UK journalists who are thinking about up in sticks and leaving kind of the, the bigger ones. So it's not like this is the end of that trend. I also think they're not just seeing it as a defensive move; they're seeing it as an opportunity. Mm. You know what? Um, what again? What Charlie Wazel says in that that newsletter is um, that you his subscribers are basically going to get and he apologizes you're going to get more marketing emails from the atlantic mm. <laughs> although his interest this is interesting his existing subscribers will get a year's subscription to the atlantic um although he has updated his blog since then or updated his newsletter and said that you can't now just subscribe to his newsletter to get a free Atlantic subscription. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently had a real bump in subscribers. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And I think it's, it's definitely because you've almost had publishers that have gone the other way over the last year and they've, they've really clamped down on 
their staff doing anything like launching newsletters or, or doing anything to build their own personal brand. And this is almost going the other way and admitting that actually there's a huge amount of power that these journalists have and that it's better to let them kind of go and spread their wings and fly and grow and then it's better financially for them in the long term. But they're not they're not all necessarily journalists. So of those nine writers uh, of those nine writers who are coming back, no. it's, um, there's there's a couple of you know author and screenwriter. There's a there's a writer there. There's that Amer- African American studies scholar. So I, my, I think my question here is: is this not is this not just primarily an op ed then uh, yeah. that would normally have sat within it? Just it just goes out as a newsletter now. How is this different in terms of commissioning and actually getting a regular commentator on board than anything that they've done in the past? Oh, you've just ruined it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not. Mm. I mean, that's exactly what it is. That that's what Charlie Wazel did for the New York Times, and mm. that's what he did before. But I think what is maybe different, and, and uh, Nick Thompson talking about this um, said that the newsletter writers will in general be more pithy than an Atlantic feature right. uh, and probably more pithy than Atlantic web posts. So what it is letting them do is bring in different kinds of talent. And you, you know, you've just read that list. Mm. Those aren't necessarily people that would take on uh, an Atlantic column or a New York Times column, but they can in, under this system. To go back to your football analogy, Peter, this might be the start of you know a, a swathe of signings from them to try and get some of those really big writers back on board with the. Atlantic I was, was going to say with the with the signings thing that this is almost publishers are now almost taking on the role here of in the music industry. They're almost becoming the the, the label. Mm. Um, and I, 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 it was a couple of years ago. I think I was reading a post from um, I don't remember who it was now who was saying you know. To be sustainable, the <laughs> the publishing industry needs to become more like um, more like music. Oh, and, I and, 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 that. Yeah, and and that's the way they should be treating the talent and signing them on, like you know, not bringing them in as an employee, but signing them on as talent. Was that Ben um, Thompson? Uh, no, it was. Uh, was, it, was it Jared? Ah, um, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Jared yeah. Dicker, I think. Yeah, it was. So yeah, whether we'll see more publishers acting as, as almost agents in that sense, or, or agencies, I don't know. But of course, this isn't the first time we've seen collectors of writers go places. Um, Forbes, at the start of the year, I don't know if you remember, they announced they were launching their own paid newsletter platform. Yeah, people were sceptical about that. I'm still sceptical about that. <laughs> and they were bringing in 20 to 30 writers to do that. I've not heard, I, I tried to find out some more about that. I couldn't find any more info out about it. But of course, <laughs> we also got a bulletin from Facebook, which amongst all the other uh, Facebook uh, users uh, just got buried. Well, mm-hmm. is it is it bulletin from Facebook or is it bulletin from Meta? Um, Come on, oh, it's Meta now, but it's still got Facebook up. branding over it. I checked it. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah. Um, and the thing I'd say is actually, do you know, good on Substack for giving the industry a bit of a kick up the arse with this mm-hmm. <laughs> interesting and now for the news in brief um, business is booming for Bloomberg Media thanks to an ad windfall and 350,000 new subscribers um, Justin B. Smith their CEO has told Press Gazette that this year 2021 has been by far and away the best year in our history their CEO Justin B. Smith uh, told Press Gazette that um, this year, 2021, is by far and away the best year in our history. Um, and he cited an unprecedented windfall of advertising spend as the reasoning behind that and says he's never seen so much ad spend in his career. Um, but if three, 350,000 new subscribers sounds like quite a lot, right? Mm. But it's short of their 400,000 target, which he's actually blaming on the Trump slump. He says that the, the, 
news cycle has been down since then, since January the 6th. We are so lucky that Trump, Trump's name rhymed with both bump and slump, aren't we, in the news industry? Otherwise, we would have <laughs> never been speaking about this. I'm suspicious of this, A, because everybody has seen a massive increase in ad spend. This isn't Bloomberg specific. This is as a consequence of last year, there being no advertising in this year, everything coming back in a big way. But also, Bloomberg, Bloomberg Media as well is so unreplicable in terms of its strengths and its you know the, its integration with the rest of the Bloomberg business. I don't think we can learn anything from this. Oh, why we even got it on here? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that there was a there was a point the article did actually draw out that it's and you know we talk about this all the time you need to have a revenue mix, but it's that subscribers aren't 100% the answer to saving your business. You can't go all in on subscribers. Actually advertising can still be a healthy business you just can't be 100% reliant on it mm-hmm. as we it's always say mix, a little bit of record. the mix of six <laughs> uh, this story I thought was really interesting I have to put this in the newsletter um, actually it's on the surface it's really dull <laughs> I'm obviously selling this uh, but Adobe and some news organizations are working on a new tool that could identify a photo's origin. Um, I mean, it's, they're still working on it, but this consortium, which includes Twitter and some publishers and Adobe, um, would create tools that would allow you to check the key details of a photograph. So dead boring, right? Except it means you can go on these posts and check whether it's actually a lot of nonsense. And I'm I'm really excited for this for Twitter because there was um there was a US politician last week that tweeted a picture of empty shelves and was like oh this is this is Biden's Build Back Better plan and it was it was a Tesco and Worcesters on like a Friday night, <laughs> um like <laughs> it wasn't like all the all the money and stuff on the shelves was in pounds it definitely wasn't even US. That's ridiculous. Um, I mean I think... that you don't even need that tool to discover. <laughs> I was going to say Adobe doesn't need to get involved in that one. <laughs> Um, but it, it, it kind of takes the onus on people having to do reverse image search and perhaps look closely at images. And actually, if you could just have a little sort of information button that says, yeah, do you know what? This was taken in Worcester at like 10 p.m. on a Friday. Mm. Um, it, it's actually nothing. Almost like the little fact checking flags you can get for content, but for photos instead. Um, it's almost one of those things you think this is definitely well, something we should have already, already. Yeah. Uh, yeah. so i don't know that it's necessarily going to stop the people who want to believe this from saying well i don't believe the fact checkers now they go well why would i believe twitter when they say this i don't think yeah, it's going to make as big a difference to most people as, as we'd like nothing's going to counteract like the minion means but um I, and you know this is a really difficult problem like the consortium has actually been working on this for two years so it's not the sort of thing you can just sort of easily slap a, a little label on and call it good. But with the tools that Adobe have got, um, there's definitely potential to go some way towards solving some of the issues. Okay, nice. <laughs> so that's that's misinformation solved. We're all happy with that. Um, <laughs> moving on now, the reliability and quality of news content plays a significant role in achieving brand safety, which is the finding of a new study which focused on Disney's news products, ABC News Division, ESPN, and some of the streaming services. So um, news perceived as heavy can actually improve brand favorability on ads appearing around by 7%, um, which is a kind of a direct counter to what we've seen a lot of advertisers back off from, you know, keyword blocking lists. And so the fact that there is evidence that that's actually counterintuitive could potentially lead to some more and revenue for publishers, I suppose. 
I'd love to know how they how they get these results. Like, do they sort of sit there and say to people how how favourably you're feeling about this ad after reading about like the COVID yeah. crisis? For, yeah, absolutely, almost certainly. Yeah. What they do. I mean, if you think about how we do radio um, metrics now, that still go to people's houses and go, "You listening?" <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's how they do it. And the information is amping up its creator economy coverage. So it launched its creator economy newsletter in April and coverage has actually already generated a six-figure subscription revenue for the publisher. Um, we're, we're in the wrong business, guys. Yeah. Um, and I mean, they know that because they've got this sort of paywall technology that does attribution to sub- subscribers. So that's that's cool. Uh, but they've also, they're also getting a separate six-figure revenue in corporate subscriptions from the reporting on the sector. Mm-hmm. Um, just a little plug, we did have their creator economy reporter, Kaya Yuriev, on the podcast just a few weeks ago, if you'd like to learn a bit more about what she covers. Look, numbers, right? We know I don't do numbers. <laughs> don't do football, don't do numbers. Don't do football, don't do numbers. But I do do Google News in Spain, <laughs> because Google News is back in Spain. It's relaunching for the first time it will be there since 2014. When Spain overhauled its copyright laws and said that they should just go away. Uh, but now they've come in line with EU regulation, um, which means that Google can actually start paying Spanish media producers. Um, individually. They, could, they, they yeah, would, individually. Previously, they would have had to pay kind of as a whole. So America's largest magazines have retained 95% of their circulation through the pandemic. Um, strong print sub-bases and growing digital issue readership have helped magazines like Vanity Fair, Vogue, and The New Yorker actually grow over the past year. So that comes from figures from the Alliance for Auditive Media, which suggests that magazines have fared way, way, way better than newspapers over the past 18 months, um, the latter of which have lost 20% of print sales. So some of our favourite magazine brands in the US are going to be sticking around for some time yet. Well, you know... Not you to, promised me. You promised not me. To you put were a be... spanner in the works. The problem with these things is you always have to look at what they're actually selling. What, what you know, if you're doing a year's subscription for two dollars, which I've seen ads for, mm-hmm. then no, they won't be around for a long time. <laughs> well, I was. Yeah, maybe this is good news then. <laughs> Just keep keep having pandemics. We'll have a magazine industry. Perfect. Perfect way to end that. Yeah. <laughs> This week's guest is James Fan, Global Director of Environmental Programmes at Internews. We spoke about his background in climate journalism, whether every journalist should be a climate journalist now, spoiler alert, they should be, and what people can do to do that effectively. But first I asked him to explain the work Internews and the Earth Journalism Network do. Uh, well, the mission of Internews is to support a free and independent press around the world, and we do that in a lot of different ways in a lot of different places. Uh, and uh, our environmental media program, which we call the Earth Journalism Network, we have a more specific mission, which is to improve the quality and quantity of environmental coverage. And uh, again, we do that through a variety of ways, but primarily by working with individual journalists and media outlets to improve coverage in local media. I mean, that's really our mission is to get more and better stories about the environment, about climate change, about all the related issues into 
local press, TV, radio, whatever medium we can, and uh, by empowering and enabling local journalists because they understand the situation best. There's so much new stuff happening around the environment because of COP26, but uh, the Earth Journalism Network's not a new thing, right? No, we've been uh, around since 2004, so 17 years now, and we have uh, we have 14,000 members in our network registered on our website from more than 180 countries. We've trained uh, must be over 13,000 journalists now and produce similar number of stories. Uh, so yeah, we've been around for a while now. When you say you train them, what what's the sort of focus of that training? It can really vary a lot because we're pretty much a global organization. We can tailor the capacity building to um, you know any pretty much any region or topic. So, uh, for instance, we might be doing a, a training on resilience reporting in uh, in coastal India, or it could be training on uh, how to cover or investigate wildlife trafficking in East Africa. So we can uh, focus on specific regions and topics or or sometimes, uh, you know, with our webinars now, a lot of our virtual training or capacity building, it can be much broader and cover global issues like the ongoing, the the climate summit, for instance, that's started now. So you've, you just told me you're getting on a plane in about 10 hours to go to Glasgow for COP26. What are you going to be doing in Glasgow? We are bringing uh, over 20 journalist, uh, journalist fellows uh, to the summit uh, from, uh, from the global south, from low and middle income countries. You know, it's so hard for journalists, especially from low and middle income countries, to get to these climate summits. And so every year, really pretty much for the last 15 years, we've been bringing journalists to the summits uh, so they can cover for their local media outlets so they don't have to rely on the international wire agencies and they can provide the coverage that their audiences need uh, to understand these glo- you know, crucial global negotiations. Um, and we're doing a lot of activities, of course, leading up. We've done a lot leading up to the the COP, and we'll be doing a lot of things there, including panel discussions and side events and things. I mean, I'd imagine the, the, the people that you're talking about there have a very different perspective on those discussions. You know, a, a US journalist or a UK journalist or anyone from from uh, continental Europe has got one point of view, but someone from, I don't know, from Africa or or from uh, Southeast Asia, whatever, they're going to have a different point of view on this stuff. How'd you get that out to people? Yeah, uh, they do. I mean, um, obviously the kind of the more vulnerable position you're in, the more likely you are to take the issue seriously. And so you can imagine if you're a journalist from a small island developing state or a vulnerable place in a in a larger country uh you're gonna really this is a matter of life and death for 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 you and certainly of livelihoods so yeah um and uh and this year also we've got a um might be particularly of interest to you is that we've got a partnership with the scotsman newspaper and uh, we're gonna and the fellows several of the fellows will be at least nine or ten of them will be um providing stories to the Scotsman uh, about 
covering their coverage of the COP, but also about what it's like to cover climate change in their home countries. Is that is that something that you do? Do you help these guys place their journalism in, for want of a better word, Western outlets? We do that sometimes, but it's not a major focus of our work. Again, we, we think, um, you know, the biggest impact comes if the stories come out in their home media outlets and their home, you know, where, where you know, they're well known. And um, and so often the, the journalists will apply to us if we'll put out a call for stories on a certain topic or in a certain region and they'll apply and they'll already have, they'll either be staff for a media organization in their home countries or they have they're a freelancer and they have strings to um to outlets and if if they if we find they're struggling we can help them for sure we find it's a you know really great story that should be of interest to people in other countries and other parts of the world uh for sure and and we have our own website and you know social media channels on all the all the usual social media uh platforms so that we get copies of their stories and post it there for a much wider distribution. Going back to COP26, part of the reason it's so, I guess, in the news for us in the UK is because it's being held in the UK. But I get a sense that this seems bigger than recent COP events. Is that Would you say that's fair? That's fair. Um, this is a big, important summit uh, because, uh, as you may may know that the you know every five or six years it seems um uh, the the summits uh become particularly important uh the of course the last major one was in paris in 2015 yeah. where the agreement was signed and that and that at that uh summit it was agreed that five years later countries should you know get together again to increase their ambition basically because we know the commitments made in paris are not really going to get us close to the stated target of keeping warming to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, I think the Paris commitments might get us to 2.7 degrees, which is still, you know, potentially catastrophic. You know, it was an important part of the whole process is to keep increasing the commitments, the ambition. And that was supposed to happen in 2020. Of course, then the pandemic happened and, uh, got postponed but yeah at least every five years i think you're going to see these big summits that get a lot of attention you've been doing this for a long time though right even before you were with uh with internews you were covering climate for the nation in thailand is that right i started in 1990 as a science and environmental journalist and in, in thailand we're producing a weekly science section for the nation newspaper uh it's great job and uh you know, we eventually had a team of Thai reporters who covered all sorts of issues around Southeast Asia related to environment and climate change and uh, learned so much from that job. And yeah, it's been so I've been 30, 30 plus years now. In terms of the level of interest in this from media organizations, and if you compare that to when you started over those 30 years, do you think there's a change? Is there some serious change a, a, a kind of management level in terms of media coverage of the climate crisis absolutely actually that's kind of been a sign of hope i would say See, we've seen a huge increase in interest from media organizations i think when i started out environment coverage was kind of relegated to the back pages you know as stories about yeah. nature and you know animals and uh 
you know, uh, how nice places to visit. And now it's front page news. It's, you know, especially in recent years, we've seen big uptick in climate coverage. I think the some of the uh, extreme weather we've been experiencing in recent years, yeah. you know, has definitely contributed to that. Do you think events like COP actually create a kind of motivation for change or is it is it almost like, I don't know, covering the Olympics and then everyone moves on to something else? Uh, I think they're useful. Uh, I think they do create, you know, by, by driving attention to the issue uh, in the media and in other, you know, among other stakeholders, it does serve a purpose of focusing people's uh, attention and, you know, potentially... Um, increasing you know pushing for more ambition uh i think it's especially useful actually for journalists uh because uh i know among all the all the programs we offer at the earth journalism network one of the most popular are these fellowships the climate change media partnership fellowships to the summits it's um it's because not only do they do the journalists you know get access to the front page so to speak because so you know, suddenly their 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 editors and their producers or supervisors take more interest, uh, and they're producing a lot more stories that get more attention. But it's like a huge immersion course. If you go to if you go to the summit, you learn you can learn so much about every aspect of climate change, and and it really does change people's careers, even their lives. I would say. Well, I saw a piece, I guess it was from DigiDay, and they published a piece saying uh, the advertiser interest in climate-related content is increasing, that, that kind of commercial interest. Is that something that you see, or do you, are you not paying much attention to that? Uh, I have to say I don't know a lot about the advertising market. That's quite interesting to hear that there's more interest in that. Uh, I think uh, on a very informal basis when I'm watching media, I seem to to see more more commercials or advertisements that refer to you know green green messaging and so on uh so but it's you know i i would not say i'm an expert on that well i guess the danger of it is it become i hate the phrase virtue cycling but it, it does become that kind of greenwashing uh, which is probably not as good as real sustained interest i think that is a, a risk yeah and and we definitely see you know, when the, when these big summits happen, uh, Kyoto in 1997, then Copenhagen 2009, then Paris 2015, and now Glasgow, we see huge interests among all sectors, not just, you know, advertising or media, but, you know, we, we tend to get a lot more support for our work during those years. And, and then sometimes it's, well, it does subside a little bit in intervening years. Uh, so, I mean, Ideally, you'd like to see it be more continuous, uh, but you know, I guess we live in an imperfect world. So, okay. well, Internews is a non-profit, right? So you are you real are you reliant on donors or? Yes, we we rely on grant funding for pretty much everything. Yes, after the COVID or the the height of the COVID crisis, I saw a report. It might have been Wolfgang Blau, but he was saying that. Okay, everyone became a COVID journalist overnight. Now everyone should become a climate journalist. You've been doing this for 30 years. You're the expert. How do you feel about every journalist becoming a climate journalist and taking the climate uh, aspect into their beat? I think that's a great point. I think that is absolutely what should happen. Um, we often face this issue, actually, when I was a reporter for my newspaper, you know, 
we had a at times we had an environment section but you kind of wonder if you're doing that you kind of you're focused on that and you and you become a ghetto and the only people are the only people reading it the ones who are already interested so if you really want to get informed people you need to get it all over the news the front page the business section the food section we've seen and that this is a message we one of the main messages we give to our journalists is this is not just an environment story this is a business story a technology story a political story a finance story a legal story an international story you know health uh food and dining some of the best stories i've seen for instance on seafood on ocean is in this food and dining section because they they report on seafood you know uh, so, uh, I absolutely agree that everyone should become a climate journalist. Everyone should learn the basics of climate science because you need to know that just to understand what's happening and why. And, but then, you know, you can d- dive into so many different angles and that's really one of the pleasures of the, of, of such a big topic. You have a wealth of choices of how to cover it. What would you say, you know, someone who's just covering a general beat or a business beat or a finance beat, what would you say was their starting point? How would, how should they get better at including climate information in their reporting? Well, figure out, first of all, again, you, you want to at least understand the basic science of climate change. I think that's kind of important. And, and, and although the science can be <laughs> forbidding, you know, especially as you get into more details, you know, you can understand the basics, I think, relatively easily. Most people could do that. So, but then figure out, well, how is climate change affecting my beat? You know, if I'm in business, well, it's going to definitely affect the energy industry. It already is. And then everything else that feeds off the energy industry, including cars and, and, uh, you know, uh, utilities and, uh, and then it's agriculture, it's cement uh, is a huge contributor, real estate, whatever it is, figure out how climate change is affecting the topic you cover and then dig into it and see what uh, what your local, you know, in this case, your local business sector, how are they responding, you know, if they are responding at all. Just looking at the role of journalists, and I'm thinking maybe now more broadly, but also specifically to climate specialists. What do you think the role is there? Is it about holding government to account, or is it raising awareness, or, or is it actually activism? How, what, what do you think is the most important role that journalists can play? Uh, certainly holding governments and industry to account is, is crucial um, because, uh, we're, you know, Governments are going to be making all these promises and industry are making also commitments and we need to be sure they're living up to them. And, you know, I think there's a big risk because it is complicated and it's, you know, this kind of pollution is invisible, essentially. So it's hard to just monitor it. And uh, so it's really up to journalists to, you know, to be watchdogs and to make sure uh, to hold governments and other uh, you know, an industry to account. And I think pu- raising public awareness is also very important. I think, you know, especially for the most vulnerable communities. And what we've learned, of course, is that now everyone is vulnerable. You know, I mean, this year, especially we've seen the floods hit even wealthy countries and heat waves and 
storms and fire and uh so everyone needs to be aware and uh you know and the media has played such an important role for that um i'm i'm less uh you know i'm less certain that a journalist should encourage activism i think uh, my um, perhaps i have a traditional approach to journalism but i think our role is really to inform and to you know and to hold you know to be a watchdog i uh i tend to shy away from activist journalism uh though i know i know there are activists out there who do wonderful reporting so i you know it's uh it's kind of up to the individual reporter i think do you think it's easier doing your job now than it was when you started or is it harder in some ways it's easier i guess because people take you seriously and uh your editor takes you seriously takes well not necessarily. It still can be a big hurdle getting your editor or your producer or whoever is your boss to to get these stories, to accept these stories. But um, so in that sense, it's easier. I think you're taken more seriously. Um, uh, and and there's a lot more information out there. There's a lot more reports. So uh, in some ways, it's easier. I guess there's also a lot more competition. If you're a journalist, you're, if you're looking for a unique angle, um, you know, that can, you know, it can be a little bit harder in that sense. Uh, so yeah, it's a mixed bag maybe. So you got lots of work coming up. Are you in Glasgow for 10 days or so? Yeah, exactly. I'm going to, I'm stopping off in London for a couple of days and then head up to Glasgow on the 4th and be there through the end of the summit. Are you optimistic that the journalism coming out of that summit will make, I guess, a material difference in terms of people's behavior, in terms of I don't know, government response or even just awareness? Well, it's a little hard to predict for, for the journalism coming out of the summit. Uh, I think it will because I, I think it will have influence just because I think it will receive more attention because the, the summit is a big deal in the media these days. So any anytime it receives more attention, I think you can expect to influence more people. It's very hard to 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 monitor or to what to prove that it's having that kind of influence because it's this we're talking about people's minds and perceptions but we have definitely been able to document how journalism has made a material difference in uh, on the ground in the climate crisis and in other and the biodiversity crisis and the ocean crisis and various other environmental crises we're facing and we've shown for instance how one of our one of the stories we supported in Colombia led uh, eventually to the government stopping a major road project that was going to cut through the Amazon forests, and we know how much roads can can destroy, uh, you know, uh, rainforests. And uh, we have so many examples of sh- you know s- stories that shut down illegally polluting factories or uh, you know, improved regulations on you know, wildlife or, or fishing or, uh, you know, um, helped uh, to resettle uh, vulnerable communities threatened by sea level rise, things like that. We have, and actually we have a web, a web page on our website, uh, earthjournalism.net, that, um, that describes in detail uh, actual impacts from stories that we've collected. And uh, I think it's, it's kind of a new thing to show to for journalists to be yeah to be monitoring that kind of impact. But I think it's important, especially if, uh, you know, these days. Yeah. 
do you think those kind of highly specific um, local stories have a bigger impact than just a general, oh, the climate crisis is really bad type stories? I think they have more measurable impact, you know, uh, uh, you know, because uh, those bigger stories, um, they might they might affect people, but it's hard for us to know for sure. I mean, unless you do really intensive surveys, audience surveys or something. So I think we're much better able to measure the impact at the local level. And you'll see most of the stories, impact stories are, are kind of like at that local level. We do have examples where MPs or, or you know, uh, you know, politicians, policymakers uh, came upon a story and then, you know, acted on a national level to change things. Uh, and that's always, you know, very interesting to see. But uh I, you know, it's, it is harder to, to uh, measure that, to, to find those examples just because, I don't know, we don't, we don't put all the resources into doing that. So, um, so I think it's important to have it in this journalism at all levels, you know, I don't think we need to pick and choose. It should be at the local, at the community level, at the national level, at the international level. I mean, we need all the help we can get. Yeah. So we ask all our guests um, for a media recommendation. Um, anything that's kind of moved them or, or informed them recently. What would you recommend to our listeners? Well, in, in, at the risk of making a shameless plug. You're allowed, you're allowed shameless plugs. Okay. Uh, I wrote a book called A Land on Fire. Um, it's about the uh, adventures I had as a journalist in Southeast Asia and the issues I covered as, you know, investigating environmental topics and climate change. So, yeah, a land on fire, and uh, it's uh, I you know certainly encourage people to check that out. Please don't forget we have a daily newsletter which brings you the four most important stories in publishing and media. You can sign up on our website voices.media or now from our Twitter profile, which is at Media Voices Pod. Sadly, an Atlantic subscription is not included. <laughs> not yet. Uh, and we, we're really busy at the moment. Uh, we've got a launch event coming up for our Media Moments 2021 report. Um, you can sign up for that at voices.media. Um, it's going to be, uh, we're going to sort of chat about the report, chat about some of the findings. We're hoping to have some cool industry names join us. Um, that is going to be on the 1st of December. It's a virtual event um, because we don't have, uh, well, <laughs> I don't think we want to go and meet anybody in person, do we? Um, so yeah, you can sign up for that voices.media. There's a nice big post on the page, Media Moments 2021 launch event. And Kofi has a monthly subscription option and we have made it available to you guys. So if you want to sign up with us for a monthly subscription and support us towards our next 200 episodes, then go to voices.media slash support. Thank you very much. And you should also head across to publisherpodcastawards.com because the entries are now open until December the 10th. We've seen some fantastic ones flying in already, but we do want to see more. We want to hear exactly what you're doing to boost the world of podcasting and your own commercial endeavors as a result. But until next week, when we'll be back with a guest who's fantastic and a tour through all the news and views in the media world, thank you so much for listening and do stay safe. Bye-bye.